Thanks, Austin. Well, good morning. Good to see you. Are you ready for this? Are you, Katie? The best sermon you'll ever hear. I understand that's a bold claim, but I actually do believe that it is true, and lest you think I am becoming more delusional as I age rather than less delusional, it's not the sermon that I'm about to deliver, but it is the sermon that my sermon will begin exploring, if that makes sense. We are going to spend the next three weeks looking, walking through Matthew chapter 5, the first part of Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount. This is actually going to take us to the beginning of Lent at least, and maybe we will dip a little bit into Lent with this series. Now, from the beginning, it's important to acknowledge that we certainly cannot thoroughly or adequately exhaust the riches of this chapter in three weeks. In fairness, we can't exhaust the beauty and riches of this chapter in an entire lifetime. So my goal over the next three weeks is not that we would become experts on this and able to move on to the next thing. My hope is instead simply that we would be captured again by the words of Jesus and continue to allow these words to shape our lives, to shape our understanding of our place in this world as followers of the one who went to great lengths to instruct his people about the nature of his kingdom. The Sermon on the Mount. It's the longest section of direct teaching from Jesus recorded in the Gospels. The the farewell discourse from the end of John's Gospel is probably the only section that rivals it. So this is clearly important. Consequently, I don't think it's possible for us to emphasize or return to this section too much. This is one of the reasons a couple of sections from this sermon reappear week after week in our midweek prayer liturgy. We sang the words of a small section of the next chapter this morning. In fact, I think memorizing these three chapters would be well worth our time. They are that important. And at times, I think some are tempted to de-emphasize these words of Jesus, maybe assuming that if the resurrection, after the crucifixion of Jesus, if the resurrection is the event that secures our salvation, well, then that's what really matters. But I think that is a reductionistic view of the life, ministry, and work of Jesus. His teaching cannot be divorced from his death and resurrection. His death and resurrection cannot be divorced from his teaching. So the Sermon on the Mount, it's where we're planting ourselves. From the beginning, from beginning to end, this sermon sets forth an alternative. An alternative both to the, that maybe impersonal materialism of secularism, but also an alternative to what John Stott decades ago called religious conformism within the church. One of his fears was that the church might over time be tempted to abandon our call to countercultural resistance, instead choosing to accommodate ourselves to the status quo or to adapt to the prevailing culture of the day, which is a new and fresh temptation for every generation. And I think this sermon, if adhered to, helps us resist that 
coal. This sermon should light a fire under those who seek to follow Jesus, ridding us both of simplistic idealism, but also outright cultural acquiescence. This is a call out of complacency, a call into revolutionary countercultural living. In a way, you know, I, I, it's hard to think of a movement. This is some of my teenage angst coming out, but it's hard to imagine a movement that would embody a countercultural punk rock ethos more clearly than a community committed to shaping their individual and collective lives around these words of Jesus. It's an alternative. From the beginning, God's people were called out and set apart. That call is repeated again and again throughout the story we read in our scriptures. It's even reiterated in the New Testament, throughout the New Testament, even as late as a place like 1 Peter chapter 2, called out of darkness, called into his marvelous light, called out, set apart. Now, we're not set apart or called out to further a preferred political ideology, whether that's left or right or something like that. And we have been called out and set apart to demonstrate something altogether more radical than either of those extremes. Called out to demonstrate something altogether more beautifully life-changing. This sermon is providing an alternative. This is what your lives look like when submitted to the reign and rule of God. Called out. Different set apart. Jesus says people who are under the rule of God will look and act differently than others. Different even than the ultra-religious, different than the scribes and Pharisees. Later in this chapter, he will say, your righteousness should actually exceed theirs. Different also from your pagan neighbors. In chapter 6, he says, don't be like the Gentiles. Don't be like the hypocrites. We'll, we'll talk more about that next week, but there is to be something noticeably different about those who attach themselves to Jesus, different from the dominant culture. This is the kingdom alternative. The upside-down values of that kingdom that is an alternative are then beautifully depicted from the beginning of the sermon in that section we refer to as the Beatitudes. Now, the first thing we read in the Gospel accounts concerning the public ministry of Jesus, so following his baptism and then following that temptation he endures in the wilderness, the first thing we read is that Jesus comes onto the scene and begins announcing the good news of God's kingdom saying, in my coming, the kingdom is near. In fact, the kingdom is here. The arrival of the kingdom calls for a change. It's as though that call that John the Baptist had been extending in preparation of the arrival of Jesus, that call to repentance, is leading to this moment. Repent. Align your lives with this inbreaking kingdom. And how do you do that? Well, it's as though Jesus says, well, let me teach you. The Sermon on the Mount 
is closely connected to that initial announcement of the good news of God's inbreaking kingdom. Think about that text in Luke chapter 4 where Jesus goes to the synagogue in Nazareth on the Sabbath and begins reading from the scroll of the prophet Isaiah in chapter 61. And this is what he reads, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The good news, the announcement that the reign of God is here, and that means good news for the poor. Liberty to the captive, sight for the blind, deliverance for the oppressed. And as we begin reading through the Beatitudes, we begin to find echoes of all of that, even in this section. So let's get into it. Verse 1, we read this. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, we'll put a pin in it for a minute. Before we get into the Beatitudes and the rest of the sermon itself, I think it's worth noting that these first couple of verses that we've just read are perhaps doing more than just locating Jesus physically or geographically, doing more than just giving us some specific setting details for the sake of readability and reader engagement. I think it's possible that Matthew is making some deliberate theological moves even in this introduction to the sermon. Matthew shows Jesus who, upon seeing the crowd, separates himself, maybe separating himself to pray and and rest from all of the hands-on ministry he was engaged in as he traveled throughout Galilee, maybe separating himself to provide more intentional and focused instruction to the disciples. Perhaps it's a mixture of both. But many commentators argue that where he escapes to in this moment is just as important. It's not that he is just getting away, but he does so by going up the mountain. This is perhaps reminiscent of another critical story from the history of God's people. Maybe your minds are already beginning to go there. Think back to the book of Exodus, where we find Moses ascending Mount Sinai to do what? Well, to receive the law, the the covenant stipulations for this recently delivered people. John Stott has suggested that in this section of Matthew, we find Jesus as the new Moses who was bringing true deliverance to the people, bringing deliverance not just to the people of Israel out of slavery, but to all people. And Jesus goes up this new Mount Sinai delivering the new law. And not law per se, but this new counterculture for his people. This sermon, then, could be understood as a joyful celebration in response to this new exodus of deliverance Jesus was leading. This sermon is not law that is to be followed through begrudging submission, 
This is a joyful response to the deliverance God is bringing. Operative word, perhaps, is joyful. Joyful response, which is actually the first word of the sermon. We refer to this section as the Beatitudes, and we do so because the Greek word that each of these teachings begins with is translated into Latin as beat. I, I don't speak Latin, but it, it's translate. I'm told that it's translated into Latin as beatus. So you can see that connection. In most of our English translations, that is then rendered as blessed, or you might hear it, blessed. But the Greek word that is translated into Latin is actually has, has a broader scope. Yes, it certainly does and can include blessed or happy or hopeful or joyful. And I think recognizing that range in meaning can actually enable a much more robust engagement with this text from the beginning. Because as Glenn Stassen has pointed out about this word that is translated for us as blessed, he says that in its 50 occurrences in the New Testament, it almost always means the joy of participation in God's action of deliverance. Blessed. It's not just happy. It's not just being in an upbeat or good mood because positive things are taking place in your life. It's, it's not just that we are blessed, certainly not in our common understanding of material blessing. It is joyful, hopeful anticipation of the deliverance of our God, who despite the present difficulty we may face in this moment, and as we read through the Beatitudes, we begin to discover and acknowledge that, yes, this present moment may be quite difficult, but despite that difficulty, our God can be trusted to deliver his people once and for all. And so we are blessed. We are hopeful. We are filled with joy. The inbreaking of God's kingdom in Jesus is a reminder to us that our God can be trusted. His deliverance is coming. So one of the age-old questions when approaching the Beatitudes is about the nature of the text. Is this descriptive or is it prescriptive? And depending on which we think it might be, could change how we approach it. You know, we talk regularly about how we don't read all literary genres in the Bible in the same way. And the same could perhaps be said of this designation between prescriptive and descriptive texts. A prescriptive text, of course, provides some instruction. Do this, don't do this. A lot of what we find in the New Testament epistles would classify as prescriptive in nature. They're pretty direct instructions addressing specific situations the church was facing. Descriptive texts, on the other hand, have a unique function. Instead of explicitly requiring certain behavior, a descriptive text will explain what happened. And then we are left to draw some conclusions based on what happened, or in this case, maybe what is happening. So is Jesus here prescribing for his followers a certain kind of behavior that 
if adhered to, will garner the blessings we desire as his followers, or is this descriptive of the nature of his kingdom? This has been debated over the years, and, and perhaps it is a bit of both. I tend to think it is primarily a description of the reality of those who have found themselves entering into and participating in God's kingdom. And yet, if it is descriptive of the nature of God's kingdom, if this is the reality we are entering, perhaps these characteristics should also be embodied in our lives. So let's continue. Verse 3, the Beatitudes. Where we read this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. These are some of the words we read together every week at our midweek prayer service, a reminder of the nature of God's kingdom. I think a reminder that we can keep hope and be joyful because God's deliverance is coming for those who are in need, especially for those who are aware of their great need. We simply don't have time this morning to look at each of these statements in detail. I mean, lunch is being prepared as we speak. In fact, as I alluded to earlier, um, this is an inexhaustible well that we will drink from for the rest of our lives. So even an entire sermon series breaking down each of these beatitude by beatitude wouldn't enable us to close the book on this. Although I think probably at some point we will do a series like that, but my hope today is really quite simple, and it is that we would be again captured by this hopeful, beautiful declaration of the nature of God's kingdom. That we might again be inspired to plant ourselves in these words and allow them to shape how we see ourselves how we understand God's world, and how we understand our place in God's world as participants in his kingdom. And to that end, rather than parsing out each word and the range of interpretive possibilities, instead I want to simply read two paraphrases that might help shock us out of maybe our over-familiarity with these words, that we might hear them anew. Is that all right? So I'm going to do that. I'm going to read two paraphrases of the Beatitudes. The first one is from Brian Zond. 
This is how he rephrased the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who are poor at being spiritual, for the kingdom of heaven is well-suited for ordinary people. Blessed are the depressed who mourn and grieve, for they create space to encounter comfort from another. Blessed are the gentle and trusting who are not grasping and clutching, for God will personally guarantee their share when heaven comes to earth. Blessed are those who ache for the world to be made right. For them, the government of God is a dream come true. Blessed are those who give mercy, for they will get it back when they need it most. Blessed are those who have a clean window in their soul, for they will perceive God when and where others don't. Blessed are the bridge builders in a war-torn world, for they are God's children working in the family business. Blessed are those who are mocked and misunderstood for the right reasons, for the kingdom of heaven comes to earth amid such persecution. And the second one, I'm very tempted to read a third one, but I'll refrain. The second one is from Glenn Stassen, who I referred to earlier. He's a professor of Christian ethics at Fuller Seminary. And he put it this way. Joyful are those who are poor and humble before God, for theirs is the reign of God. Joyful are those who are deeply saddened to the point of action, for they will be comforted. Joyful are those whose wills are surrendered to God, for they will inherit the earth. Joyful are those who hunger and thirst for restorative justice for they will be filled. Joyful are those who practice compassion in action, for they will receive God's compassion. Joyful are those who seek God's will in all that they are and do, for they will see God. Joyful are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Joyful are those who suffer because of restorative justice, for theirs is the reign of God. Joyful are you when they criticize, persecute, and slander you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in God. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets before you. Amen. As participants in God's kingdom, as those who have entered and are living under his reign and rule, whatever the external situation we face in the moment, we are blessed. We can remain joyful. We can keep hope in this moment because God is our deliverer. And his deliverance is a sure promise that we can count on. He will bring deliverance. He is leading his people on a new exodus out from under the curse of sin. Be filled with hope. Be joyful. Deliverance is coming.
And now that we know that we are truly blessed because of the deliverance of God, the question then remains for us, well, what do we do with that blessing? How do we live in a way that is consistent with the kingdom that Jesus is describing? These are the questions that we will continue to explore over the next couple of weeks. As we continue, we'll pick it up where we left off this morning, working our way through the Sermon on the Mount. But today, my encouragement to you is very simple. Keep hope. Keep hope. We acknowledge the difficulty of the present moment that can feel overwhelming. But we have been promised that our God is a deliverer. And it's a promise we can count on. Keep hope. Be filled with joy. God's salvation is coming. Would you stand this morning? We're going to gather and celebrate around this, the table of our Lord. These gifts that God has given to his people through which we are reminded of that salvation, of the deliverance that Jesus has wrought on our behalf. We gather around this table to celebrate in joy, remembering that we are a blessed people. We invite you to the table of our Lord. We'll make two lines down these center aisles. You'll come to the front, you'll receive the elements, and you'll hear the words spoken over you, the body of Christ broken for you the blood of Christ shed for you. You can take the elements and return to your seat. I want to say a prayer by way of invitation this morning. Lord Jesus, we pause in this moment to reflect on your promise of deliverance. salvation that has been secured for us through your death and resurrection. As we have heard these words from your sermon, as we continue to allow them to seep into our minds and into our lives, we pray that you would renew our hope and our joy. deepen our trust, draw us deeper into your life. So we pray, O oh God, you know that we are set in the midst of many grave dangers. And because of the frailty of our nature, we cannot always stand upright. Grant that your strength and protection may support us in all dangers and carry us through every temptation. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Would you join us at the table of our Lord this morning?